0: This is Christian Knudsen and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. State Republican lawmakers have introduced a bill which would add watermarks to absentee ballots, reports Wisconsin Examiner. Advocates for the bill say this would prevent photocopying of the ballots, although there is no evidence that this has been a widespread problem in Wisconsin. Election clerks say watermarks would likely not aid in the security of absentee ballots. Election officials say ballots already have to go through several checkpoints and that this would add an unnecessary cost to printing the ballots. A similar bill was introduced in the legislature last year and did not receive a hearing.
1: Wisconsin's top election official was interviewed by federal investigators earlier this year in connection with the 2020 presidential election. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Elections Commissioner Megan Wolfe was interviewed in April in connection with an investigation into efforts by former President Donald Trump to overturn the results of that election. Neither Wolfe nor the Wisconsin Elections Commission provided comment on the interview, outside of the fact that it did occur, due to the open investigation against Donald Trump. Wolf wasn't the only Wisconsin elections clerk to be interviewed for the investigation. Madison's top election clerk, Mary Beth Witzel-Bell, told reporters yesterday that she, too, spoke with the FBI earlier this year, as did the city of Milwaukee's top election official, Claire Whittle-Vogg. Both of those interviews also concerned Trump's actions surrounding the 2020 presidential election. Multiple recounts, investigations, and court cases have confirmed that President Joe Biden won the state of Wisconsin in 2020.
0: Madison Metropolitan School District spokesperson Tim Lamons has retired from the district, NBC15 reports. That comes after Lamons was placed on leave during an ongoing investigation into allegations made against him. These allegations were were revealed after a judge ruled that the school district had to hand over an internal investigation into Lamons, which was sparked by employee complaints about him. That complaint alleged Le Mans had bullied and harassed both MMSD communications staff along with local journalists and had makes, made sexist comments about both. District staff say that investigation has been completed, but its results are not currently available to the public. Meanwhile Interim Superintendent Lisa Kavistad has pr- pr- promised that the district will review the organizational structure of the communications department and other leadership departments before recruitment for the spokesperson role begins. LeMond's retirement is effective immediately.
1: July is Disability Pride Month and the City of Madison will hold its first Disability Summit later this month. The summit will be held virtually on July 27th and 28th and looks to find ways to connect people with disabilities to government leaders. The event will feature seminars, training, and speeches for local disability rights advocates and election leaders. The virtual summit will be followed up with the City's annual Disability Pride Festival at Warner Park. There will be several community organizations attending this event as well as family-friendly activities for children and youth with disabilities.
0: A popular pig on the city's southwest side has been told by the city that he has to go. Rudy the pig is owned by a Madison resident who lives next to the southwest bike path where he has become a neighborhood celebrity. But last week Rudy got a visit from the city county health department after receiving a complaint from a neighbor And the owner was told that city ordinance bans the possession of pigs within city limits. Rudy needs to find a new home by Thursday or face a weekly fine of $124. The owner is not sure what to do with Rudy at this point and has reached out to their alder to find out if there are exceptions for pets. And now on to today's top stories.
1: While COVID-19 lingers, so too do its rip- repercussions on policymaking. Today, Republican lawmakers discussed a constitutional amendment that would block health departments from closing places of worship in public health emergencies. WRT producer Nate Wegehout
2: has the story. The proposed amendment would bar government entities from closing places of worship during a declared emergency. That would include cases like the public health emergencies declared during the COVID-19 pandemic. It would also include other emergencies at the national, state, or local level. The proposed amendment was spearheaded by Representative Ty Bodden of Hilbert and Senator Cory Tomchek of Mozeny both Republicans. Several dozen Republican lawmakers have also signed off on it. And it's a reaction against the actions taken by public health agencies during the 2020 lockdown when Governor Evers issued a statewide stay-at-home order, which was later extended. That order became a frequent conservative target during the pandemic. The stay-at-home order was struck down by the state Supreme Court months later after being issued. In that decision, justices decided that an extended stay-at-home order would also require legislative approval. Still, local health departments were able to limit the amount of people who could gather in one place. And after the Supreme Court struck down the order, Public Health Madison Dane County ordered that places of worship still had to limit their attendance to a quarter of their capacity, up to a maximum of 50 people. And while that was legal at the time, such an action from a local health department would be illegal under the proposal. At a public hearing of the proposed amendment before the Senate Committee on Licensing Constitution and Federalism today, Republican Representative Karen Hurd of Fall Creek, a co-sponsor of the proposal, called those limitations an infringement of rights.
3: To limit,
1: impede, and forbid religious gatherings... In the name of public health, it's not just a narrowing of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, but an assault that disrupts the very underpinnings of this vital freedom.
2: Two groups have registered in support of the proposed amendment, Pro-Life Wisconsin and Wisconsin Family Action. No groups have registered against the proposal, though two groups, Wisconsin Catholic Conference and the Wisconsin Council of Churches, have registered as neutral and interested in the bill. Peter Bakken with the Wisconsin Council of Churches spoke at today's public hearing, saying that just because a physical church closes its doors, that doesn't mean that the church itself is shuttered.
0: A church or other house of worship is not closed or shut down simply because in-person gatherings are restricted due to public health or safety concerns. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, we, the Wisconsin Council of Churches, learned from letters, surveys, and conversations with faith leaders that congregations continued to meet their members and their communities' needs in spite of limits on in-person indoor gatherings.
2: Public Health Madison-Dane County told WORT Today that the proposal would hinder the ability of local health officers to prevent public health threats and could lead to unnecessary preventable illness. Republicans in Wisconsin have repeatedly tried to pass legislation barring local governments from limiting indoor gatherings. One bill passed the legislature in 2021 but was vetoed by Governor Evers but this proposal is different from the regular legislative process. This time as a constitutional amendment, the proposal would need to be approved both this year and next year by the legislature. Then the question would be posed to voters. If approved by voters, the governor could not intervene with a veto. Arizona, Florida, North Dakota, and South Carolina have all passed similar proposals limiting the ability of public health departments since the COVID pandemic. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate wege
0: Come on, Barbie, let's go watch a movie. Barbie and Oppenheimer are an unexpected duo set to shatter the box office upon their release this weekend. The film industry took a hard hit during the COVID-19 pandemic, but is it possible that these two movies mark the comeback for theaters? WORT reporter Hewan Lim has more.
4: The Barbie and Oppenheimer movies, or colloquially known as Barbenheimer, is set to release in the United States this Friday. Barbie is forecasted to open above $90 million, while Oppenheimer is expected to gross $40 million to $55 million at the box office opening weekend. Robin Schmolt, the Wisconsin Union Directorate Film Committee advisor,
3: says that, Um, We're talking two buzzy blockbusters that are really driving some advanced ticket sales. So I think one of the first times since the pandemic that we're really seeing some box office competition.
4: Sarah, a manager at Flix Brewhouse in East Town Mall, says that the Barbie movie sold $9,000 worth of tickets overnight. She thinks that the Barbenheimer opening weekend will likely be the biggest since the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's unclear if the momentum generated by Barbenheimer is sustainable and will lead to a continued rise in theatergoers, especially in light of the ongoing SAG-AFTRA and Writers Guild of America strikes. Eric Gunnison, a communication arts faculty associate at UW-Madison says.
5: I think it's really complicated to predict where a movie going is headed. The summertime
3: tends to be the most attended time in the theater, so it's possible that these two movies just kind of coincide with that, and it's possible that it's part of a trend. Given the
5: current situation with the two strikes that are going on, it's difficult to know exactly what will be coming down the pipeline.
4: According to Jim Healy, the director of Cinematech Film Programming, tailoring programming to audience interests might be what saves movie theaters.
3: We have noticed a kind of trend where those younger audience, say you know, mid-30s or younger, showing up for uh, cult classic films from the 70s, 80s, 90s that have had reputations or growing reputations. And we kind of leaned into that and it's decided to show more films like that.
4: Schmolt, who works with UW-Madison students on programming movies for campus, agrees that leaning into the needs of audience
3: members is the key to success. So, Wood Film in the programming that they do offers screenings that are free and open to the campus community. So, we're a non theatrical venue, so we're getting content after it first runs in commercial theaters. Um, but that really allows the students to program some niche films um, as well as repertory titles, uh, have fun with lots of themed festivals and things like that. So, um, we're really still trying to cultivate the value of a film-going experience like a communal film-going experience.
4: Sarah has an optimistic outlook on the future of movie theaters stating that quote movies are back end quote after witnessing the boom in sales for the super mario brothers movie and barbenheimer pre-sales Gunnison thinks that the communal and nostalgic aspects of theater going is what will keep it alive.
5: You know i i think that theaters have this kind of primal experience for people i Believe that they will stay. It's something I've always been really devoted to. It's one of the things that I think makes a small event like the Wisconsin Film Festival tremendously exciting: is to go see movies in packed theaters one
2: after another.
5: And I think theaters will survive.
4: An early access Barbie blow-up party feature screens tomorrow at Marcus Point Cinema on the West Side, but it's almost completely sold out. Meanwhile. AMC Theatres, which has locations in Fitchburg and Johnson Creek, but closed down their Madison location last December, reported that 40,000 of their loyalty members had purchased tickets for a Barbenheimer Double Feature nationwide. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Hewan Lim.
1: PFAS, often called forever chemicals, are a group of substances that have been linked to a slew of health defects and are confirmed to be contaminating waterways across the state. While Wisconsin has grappled with the problem for years, a recently introduced bill in the state legislature looks to provide funding to help communities address the chemicals. But Wisconsin Conservation Voters, a nonprofit environmental group, says the bill also includes a loophole that would make it more difficult for the State Department of Natural Resources to test for and remediate PFAS statewide. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Peter Burris with the Wisconsin Conservation Voters about the bill.
2: Now, Peter, can you tell me about Senate Bill three one two? What would this bill do? Sure.
6: Well, I think the first thing to know about Senate Bill three twelve is that you know we can't really talk about it without talking about what happened in the biennial budget. So, you know, thanks to the hard, hard work of impacted communities uh, across the state who have been fighting for funding for PFAS for years and years, we are finally starting to see some bipartisan action um, in Wisconsin's legislature around this issue, and. It could not, you know, we know this is a serious problem. PFAS are tied to scary health-related impacts like challenges getting pregnant, birth defects, heart disease, testicular cancer. So we've known for a long time that we need relief for our communities facing contamination. And so in May, the Joint Finance Committee passed $125 million in funding, which the, the governor signed just this past month to be directed towards both municipal drinking water systems that are finding PFAS contamination, but also um, private well owners. a third of Wisconsinites who get their drinking water from private wells. They're also, in many cases, facing PFAS contamination. So the funding targeted towards them, but there wasn't actually any policy included with the funding. So it is now sitting in, in an account with the Joint Finance Committee, and we need to pass legislation to determine how that funding can go out the door, the structure for that funding. So that's where Senate Bill 312 comes into play. As you mentioned, it creates grant programs, critically important and and needed grant programs for municipal drinking water systems and private well owners. It also has some key pieces related to um, research and assistance for testing. But, um, yes, we're very concerned about this piece of the bill uh, that would limit the DNR's authority and undermine Wisconsin Spills Law, which is a more than 40-year-old tool we have to identify contamination, begin remediation, and hold polluters accountable for the the, the messes they create.
2: And we'll get into that a little bit more in a second here. But uh, Wisconsin Conservation Voters is officially registered as neutral and interested in this bill. So neither for nor against it. So let's we'll get into your concerns in a moment. But what do you see as positive with this bill? So from
6: the start, I think the thing that's most positive is we heard right out of the gate that the legislators leading on this bill, Senator Senator Wimberger, Senator Coles, Representative Mursa, uh, Representative swearingen, that they were interested in improving this bill. So we knew right out of the gate that they were open and um, willing to receive feedback on, on how it could be improved. So that was part of the, the way, the reason we're engaging, why we're engaging is uh, we had serious concerns about the bill when it came out, but also saw th- the possibility for it to be a vehicle for this funding, this, this needed funding for our communities. So we've been very clear with the leading authors that if this bill, as it's currently drafted, were to pass through committee and move to the floor of the Assembly and the Senate. This current version, we would ask the governor to oppose, uh, to, to veto if it got to his desk. But we're, we're very hopeful that that doesn't happen. We're cautiously optimistic that they will be responsive to the pushback on this particular piece of, of the bill, which we really re, we do see as a polluter, a polluter loophole.
2: And tell me about that polluter loophole and your concerns with the bill.
6: Sure. So th- there is a section of the bill that specifically speaks to limitations on the DNR. So while we are, we, we see the most important part about this bill as getting money out the door as quickly as possible. And we don't believe that it should be navigating, you know, restructuring how the DNR operates and its ability to test for contamination around the state, begin remediation and hold polluters accountable. We have learned a lot in the past year. Since since the the, um, legislature and the governor's office passed our state's first drinking water standards last summer, we've begun testing comprehensively around the state and found PFAS contamination in over 120 communities. So we're starting to get a better sense of where across the state we're facing contamination. But as I mentioned, more than you know, approximately one third of Wisconsinites get their drinking water from private wells. PFAS are a huge class of chemicals, so. We're kind of at the tip of the iceberg in terms of fully understanding where across the state we're facing contamination, where we need to direct resources. So we can't afford to take $125 million and and direct it to communities while undermining long-term remediation efforts with these limitations on the DNR. And it's not only, you know, these limitations couldn't only implicate uh, PFAS contamination remediation, but other contaminants that emerge down the road.
2: And you mentioned the state's spill laws a little bit earlier so how does this bill undermine the DNR's ability to test for PFAS, and what does it do to those spill laws
6: The section on DNR's uh, limitations on the DNR would specifically specifically talks about changes within that chapter of Wisconsin statute which is which is the spills law so in in limiting where the DNR has the authority to begin testing and limiting where it can begin remediation and, and limiting, its ability to hold polluters accountable. That is all those are all the pieces that undermine the spills law more broadly. And and the spills law has been critical to identifying contamination on the PFAS front specifically. So we think about a place like Marinette and places like Marinette and Peshtigo in northeastern Wisconsin, where Senator Wimberger represents. Tyco fire products up there knew about PFAS contamination for about four years uh, and that they were contaminating the groundwater before they told impacted community members. We only figured out the scale of contamination because of the DNR's authority. Um, and now, you know, we are making sure that residents there have access to safe drinking water. But who knows how long the, sec- the secret would have been kept if it weren't for the DNR's authority to identify contamination, uh, begin remediation, and, and hold, in this case, Tyco accountable up there. So um, some clear examples of where it's helped us begin tackling PFAS here in the state. Um, and we just can't, can't afford to risk that protection.
2: And so then what exactly would you like to see changed with this bill?
6: So from our perspective, limitations on the DNR don't belong in this bill. Uh, this is about getting funding to communities that have been dealing with the issue for years or that are just figuring out, but know there's, there's contamination and need financial resources to address that contamination. First and foremost, about making sure that when Wisconsinites turn on their tap, they can be confident that the water coming out of it is safe to drink. So in a perfect world, this section of the bill is not included, and we are advocating for its removal. There are specific language changes uh, that we've kind of set at the bottom line we would would need to see in order to not oppose the bill. So um, there's a little bit of a, here is our ideal situation, and here's how we can, if the bill authors refuse to remove this section, here's what we would need to see in order to not oppose it. Um, and, and you know, at least on that front, we are um, very hopeful and, and encouraged by conversations that we've been having. And I would say as well, the way that the bill authors have been engaging with members of the public on this.
2: And Peter, do you have just any final thoughts on anything that we've talked about here that you would like to share? Uh,
6: I guess I would just say, Nate, that this is this is a critical moment for this legislation. We know that um, the bill authors want to move it to through committee in the late summer and, and get it to a vote in the fall. So. If you share an interest in getting funding out to communities and also share concern uh, that this bill could undermine Wisconsin Spills Law um, and undermine our, our DNR's ability to hold polluters accountable, protect communities, um, this, is, this is the time to contact your legislators. This is what we're trying to do with our uh, ongoing campaign, encourage folks to contact your legislators, talk about some of the, the good pieces and the not so good pieces, the bad pieces of this bill. Um, if you're looking for more information, conservationvoters.org, you can take action there. You can find um, more information on this bill specifically and PFAS more broadly. But this this is the moment to engage because conversations are ongoing around how to address some of the, the problems with this bill right now.
2: I've been talking with Peter Burris with Wisconsin Conservation Voters about Senate Bill 312 to try and clean PFAS in communities across Wisconsin. Peter, thank you so much for talking with me today.
6: Thank you for having me,
1: Nate. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with my co-host, Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us.
0: A new social media app debuted earlier this month, and New York Times social media reporter Ryan Mack explored how much competition it poses to Twitter. WORT reporter Abigail Levin spoke with Mac about what Threads means.
7: Meta, the company behind social media giants Facebook and Instagram, has launched a new social media platform. It's called Threads, and it sure looks a lot like Twitter. I'm here with reporter Ryan Mack, who covers technology and social media for The New York Times. Yeah, Ryan, thanks for being with me today. I just want to start with asking, do you have Threads? Have you downloaded it yet? I
0: have.
5: I think I posted one message on it, but I got it pretty early just to see what was on there.
7: On that note, what kind of content are you seeing there? It's really
5: interesting. I mean, first of all, it's, it's very early is what we should say about that. But Meta has gone through this approach of, you know, attracting top Instagram users to threads. And what does that mean? That means a lot of, you know, influencers, a lot of brands, a lot of celebrities. These are the folks that they've attracted to kind of post on their and kind of build their presence um, starting kind of with this top down approach, you know, starting with, you know, the people and the organizations and the brands that everyone wants to follow. And so, you know, in the early days, what we've seen here is posts about, you know, like people making jokes about joining a new social network and like trying to figure out, you know, what the, the best protocol is for posting something like that. It it really feels like kind of like the first day of school, the first week of school. And we're not really sure what Threads is for yet. And so I think people are trying to figure that out.
7: Can you describe what it looks like for maybe users who haven't downloaded it and who the audience it's kind of targeting?
5: Very much the same format, you know, a text based kind of microblogging platform, if you want to call it that, or social network, where people can broadcast their every thought, their every, you know, joke. To the rest of the world, and you know, usernames are associated with the same username that they have on Instagram, so you can kind of easily port that identity over. And right now, they don't have a kind of feed of the people you're following, something called a kind of timeline-based feed, but it's an algorithmic feed that's curated for you. So Meta has developed some kind of algorithm that thinks it will show you what you want to see. So you know, if you Follow Ellen DeGeneres and a bunch of other celebrities that might give you, like, a non-chronological feed of those those kinds of posts.
7: And how does this compare to Twitter?
5: So Twitter, I, I think it's pretty clear to see that, you know, this is meant to be a Twitter competitor. You know, there's Mark Zuckerberg saw an opportunity in kind of Twitter's failings over the last couple months after the Elon Musk acquisition to build, uh, you know, something that could essentially replace it. And so... It's very similar in use case, very similar in appearance. Twitter does have you know, a chronological timeline as well as an algorithmic timeline. Meta is still building those features for Threads. But, you know, I think eventually they'll converge to look feel very similarly. It's just going to take time for the company, for Meta to build that out.
7: Yeah, and this is an interesting time for Twitter. Like, obviously, it's experiencing some turbulence with Elon Musk, and a lot of people are upset about what's happening. Do you think there's significance to threads being launched at this time where Twitter is experiencing some conflict of interest?
5: Oh, it's totally intentional. I mean, as soon as Elon Musk took over a couple months ago, took over last October, as as of December, January, you know, we heard rumblings inside of Meta from our sources and from folks that, you know, they saw an opportunity to build something like this. Meta took a big swing trying to, you know, they literally changed their company name from Facebook to Meta, betting on this metaverse. And, you know, it's been Largely a miss up until this point. They haven't garnered the same type of interest, the same type of use cases that they probably would have expected with kind of virtual reality and augmented reality. So they haven't really had a product that's been a hit for for quite some time. Threads, even though it is a copycat, has been a hit for at least the the first couple weeks. More than 100 million downloads, I think 150 million downloads at this point. And they haven't seen a momentum like this for any product in in years. You know, I think the fastest downloaded app we've seen in some time, if not ever. um, And they're trying to ride that wave at this
7: point. Absolutely. You mentioned the metaverse. Do you think there are any concerns with this, with Instagram, Facebook and now threads being owned by the same person, which is Mark Zuckerberg? Do you think there are antitrust or monopoly concerns that will arise?
5: Um, Certainly. You know, that's why there are ongoing FTC investigations into the company to the company that is now worth, at one point, they're flirting around the trillion dollar uh, market capitalization um, mark. I'm not sure exactly where their stock is these days, but massive companies that are co- are dictating kind of our everyday online lives, whether that's a meta or Google and Alphabet or, you know, Apple, you know, everything is being consolidated into these large company silos. And it is worth wondering you know, how much of our online existence is being controlled by three or four companies.
7: Do you think like looking at the audience of Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, what audience do you think Threads is going to have or is it going to be more political like Twitter? Or is it going to be more social like Instagram?
5: I think that really remains to be seen. And social networks are dictated by how their users use it. Adam Aseri, the the head of Instagram, has said he doesn't want Threads to become a political or a place where people share news I'm not sure you can really control that if you can say all you want about that, but if your users tend to use your social network in a way where you share discussions about politics or you share discussions about the latest news, it's going to go that way. And they've branded threads as potentially being the new town square. And what do people talk about in the town square Well, they talk about news and they talk about politics and they talk about sports and, you know, celebrity gossip. And so it has everything. And so, I think if Threads is going to be that place, that through Twitter replacement, it's going to have to have all those elements. Now, that being said, it's going to have to also deal with any of the ugly side that comes out of that, whether that's misinformation or political influence or, you know, all the things that we've seen pop up on these social networks that have caused problems for democratic societies over the last couple of years.
7: And what do you see is the future of threats? Do you think you mentioned there's so much momentum, it's the fastest growing app. Do you think this is only going to continue to grow or will it maybe lose momentum after a while?
5: It's starting to lose momentum actually this week. I mean, in terms of daily usership, it's dropped kind of quite a bit, according to third party research. But it's hard to say. They will build more features. It still hasn't been brought online in the European Union because of regulation concerns over there. I think people are still obviously trying to figure out what to post on there. So it's really, really early to tell. It could go north, it could go south. I mean, we think of something like Google Plus, for example, an ill-fated Google social network that was built to combat Facebook a couple years ago. You know, that had 90 million users at one point who signed up. That was a massive number of people, and that is now fundamentally obsolete. So there are histories of these things not working out, but Meta has shown at least, prior to changing its name to Meta that it's been a very capable operator that it can build these kind of social platforms, whether that's Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or Messenger. So. It's- kind of hard to bet against them at this point.
7: Thanks for sharing about that. Is there anything else you think listeners of WRT should know about this?
5: I think they're always as you're signing up for these social networks, you know, whether it is threads or whatever, you should, you know, be very cognizant of what you're signing up for. I mean, there are privacy concerns heading into threads. For example, you can't even delete your threads account without completely deleting your Instagram account. I think that has been kind of an eye opening concern for folks especially given all the privacy concerns and data concerns with Meta in the past over the last couple of years. So I would caution people to be a little more aware of those situations, not saying they shouldn't use them, but to be aware of what they're getting into when they're signing up for these things.
7: And one last question. What is your thread so that people can find you there after this?
5: Oh, no. <laughs> so this is this is the, it's, My issue with this is, you know, I've, I've had a kind of semi-private Instagram account. I think this is actually a big issue with threads. You know, on, on Twitter, I, I have kind of a very public persona. On Instagram, we share photos of friends and family and my, you know, my cat. I've intentionally kept that private over, you know, how many years. And to create a thread, you need to create, to have an associated Instagram account. So I created a thread under that account. And that exists now. And kind of, I'm a little uncomfortable with it being out there in the open. But, you know, my my Instagram account is still locked. But my thread is Mac underscore Ryan underscore. So,
7: Well, um, thank you so much for speaking with me.
5: For sure. Always happy to.
7: And that's where you can find uh, Ryan's threads. And then you can find WRT on threads at W-O-R-T-F-M. Each Tuesday this summer, feature contributor Reed Kamai highlights one
1: of the best regional nature trails for consideration for your next outdoor adventure. We call it Trail Tuesday. Tonight, Reed travels south to explore the Adam Burning Conservancy in Whitewater.
8: Welcome to another edition of Trail Tuesday. Today, we drive a long way east before prodding through the thick grass of the Adam Burning Conservancy. The Adam Birding Conservancy, or ABC as I'll refer to it going forward, was created in 2015 and is located over three and a half miles north of the UW-Whitewater campus. It's off Findlay Road, which is connected on both sides to Fremont Road, which in turn can be accessed on the south from County Highway U, or from the west through County Highway N. There's a small parking lot at the entrance to ABC on the east side of the road, as it runs north and south. There are two main loops at the ABC. The much larger of the two is called the Inner Peace Loop and is connected to the parking lot. It is 2.3 miles in length, though by taking a shortcut, the trek can be reduced to one mile according to the park's map. The second loop, 3 quarters of a mile in length, is called the Upland Prairie Trail, and while the map does not show the two trails to technically be connected, there is a short spur between them. I'd only just parked the car, and yet the Adam Birding Conservancy was living up to its name already. Walking from the parking lot towards the trail, you first enter a wide open space and can see the entrances to the inner peace trail. I went in through the entrance straight ahead, and although this runs against the arrows on the official trail maps as I would later discover, it was not too much of a problem. Much of the trail consists of tall grass, even on the walked portions of it. The path was wet at times as well, potentially because I visited the trail the day after some rain. For that, I'd suggest wearing long pants and hiking boots, or at least any pair of shoes and socks you are okay with getting wet. You will find lots of pollinator-friendly flowers and plants alongside and even within the trail. As such, don't be surprised to see bees and other insects flying around. Be sure to apply bug spray before you head out to the trail, or you could have one itchy body later. Some of the tall plants on either side hang so far as across the trail. In some cases, especially later as we'll find out firsthand, it is inevitable that you'll have to push your way through the upper portions of the vegetation. The inner piece trail starts out straight. Before it bends left, there is a so-called antastic loop. It's about a half mile long and offers views of Formica ant mounds. With my mind set on completing the full trail loop, I pass on the ant views. Soon thereafter is another cutoff on the right to the Fen Flowage. This is short, just a tenth of a mile round trip. A fen is a type of wetland where there is an accumulation of peat, decayed organic materials. This, when well maintained, allows for rare plant species to grow. The grass en route to the fen flowage is the tallest I'd seen yet, reaching my knees, though it's worth noting I'm not very tall. If it weren't for the sign, I would not have thought this was a walkable path. After trudging through that path, you find the fen. It's quite small, and there's little else to see. Back on the main trail, we can find lots of plants stable enough for birds to perch themselves, and they made their calls heard. The real bird watching treat is a short while later. There will be an entrance on the right to the wildlife blind, at the end of which you can see such waterfowl as trumpeter swans. I wanted a look, and I headed toward the blind. It was another thick patch, and this root also had some plants with the hair and leaves of three, albeit small ones, that can indicate poison ivy. Not wanting to increase the risk of a rash or other problems, I abandoned the odyssey towards the trumpeters. Very shortly after that quite literal brush with danger, I did feel a fair amount of itching on my right leg, as I have with past close calls with poison ivy. After the walk, I made it a point to wash my legs with soap and water, as recommended by the FDA. Because I live over an hour from this trail, I washed my legs in the bathroom of a nearby gas station minimart. I resumed the rest of the walk as planned, though. There is another intersection with a path to the left, though no sign to orient the visitor. It is the humorously named Had Enough Shortcut, and is the cut-through I mentioned earlier that reduces the walk through the Inner Peace Trail to one mile. Continuing north, there was a pleasant breeze to accompany me, possibly having to do with the overcast skies above. There were thunderstorms later that day, which I fortunately beat out. The grass in this portion of the walk was reasonably mown down, and wheat plants now begin to line the trail. Another three-way intersection appears a while later. Turning left takes you up a hill in contrast to the relatively flat terrain we've been on so far. I walked straight and through another path of tall grass and denser stretches of wheat, which, more so than instances we've witnessed so far, intrude into the path. (sighs) In the moment, I likened it to riding in the Tour de France where fans sometimes crowd the road and back away only when they absolutely have to. I began to seriously doubt if this path continued any longer, or if it even was a path to begin with. The Conservancy's map advises that the trail extensions, indicated by dotted lines as opposed to the dashed lines used for the main trails, may be highly vegetative and not maintained. This was very much the case here. I turned around and instead took the sloped route I described earlier. As it turns out, the slope is part of the Inner Peace Trail. It levels off quickly and leads to a wood bench, the first one I found on the walk so far. Needless to say, I needed a sit down. From here to the end of our trek, there are lots of fun elements of the trail to discover. Across from that bench is a very short extension, at the dead end of which is a maple tree. There's a hollow opening in the tree for an adult to sit in. After that is another split off to the right, to an area called William's Woods. You can find a large oak tree known as Old Abe, It's thought that in 1832, nearly 30 years before he became president, Abraham Lincoln was within a few miles of what is now this conservancy in his involvement in the Black Hawk War. And at a Y-shaped intersection is a sign indicating this with three images side by side. In the middle is a fork in the road. By that I mean a fork, like the eating utensil, sitting in an actual road. The image on the left is of the Ingalls family from the TV series Little House on the Prairie, and the image on the right is of Woody from Toy Story. I'd say the pictures line up with where the trails go, a prairie on the left and a path lined with trees on the right. I proceeded Woody's way. In addition to a lot of trees on either side of the trail, there are more wheat plants to witness as well. The path is well known, and so there are also fewer bees and insects. It's difficult to see the rest of the conservancy from here, but the views up and down the trail are magnificent. Soon you'll reach a T-shaped intersection, You can turn right to check out other paths in the northernmost portion of the property, or do what I did, which is turn left to head back towards the start point. Here we walk south on a segment of the trail called the Dike Hike. The upland prairie is to the right, and marshes can be seen on the left. We shortly come across a left turn. A sign indicates that the left turn is the continuation of the Inner Peace Trail, but the barn-like buildings straight ahead look much like those near the parking lot. I stayed straight, but as I would later discover, the sign was correct. We also passed the entrance to the .7 mile loop I alluded to in the early part of this report. This is the Upland Prairie Trail. It's relatively flat and logically surrounds that prairie. I held off on taking the loop for now. I reached the buildings up ahead, but despite the resemblances to those near the parking lot, it in fact was separate private property, as the owner came out to inform me. She did helpfully advise me where the lot I was in search of was, which is in the general direction as I was headed. I continued south on Findlay Road and arrived back at my car. Like I mentioned, you can turn left back at the sign that states it is the Inner Peace Trail, and this will lead you back to the wide open space we began in, rounding out a trek that will feel much longer than the actual distance thanks to the tall grass throughout. The birds and other unique species and elements of this walk, though, make it a worthwhile one. Be sure to join us in a week's time for the next edition of Trail Tuesday. For now, reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai.
0: When people talk about their favorite birds, most will probably mention the bald eagle or the robin or maybe even the peacock. Not many people, though, are going to mention the common house wren. Regardless, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg loves this common bird and talks about their care on tonight's archival edition of Wildlife Weekly.
9: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about house wrens. Now. I would say that there aren't a lot of people out there like me who love house wrens. Uh, There are a lot of people that don't like house wrens, but I think that they are a fascinating species that are worth talking about here on our wart radio segment. House wrens are very common here in the state of Wisconsin. They are a very small songbird that is tiny and brown and fast and very, very vocal. Um, If you've never seen a house wren, I would totally understand, even though they're common in relatively urban areas on some edge woodland areas, especially, Uh, we don't really see them much because they're just so quick and so fast. Honestly, you're gonna hear them before you'd probably see them because of how tiny they are. Now, why are there complex opinions about house wrens? Well, some people like them because they're just really cool. They're one of those tiny bird species that um, forages very actively in vegetation. Uh, Usually they love to eat spiders. So if you don't like spiders in your house, but you have wrens around in your area, that's one of their favorite foods. Um, They're just very bouncy, very bright, very almost hyperactive little songbirds. And uh, and so I think they're actually really great in in our environment, people that don't like house wrens are, you know, might be folks that are trying to recruit bluebirds, for example, to bluebird trails or nest cavities, because they are definitely one of those species that can easily take over a nest box of another species that you might be trying to help for conservation efforts. So it's kind of the bane of people's existence if they've got uh, house wrens that have decided to nest in their bluebird box. But also, wrens can be very territorial and honestly pretty aggressive to other species. So, you know, you might have. Uh, some species of birds nesting in your backyard and all of a sudden then you've got house friends that have moved in and they will you know chase off other birds sometimes they've even been known to actually attack other birds eggs and uh, even kind of destroy nests but mostly you know, inadvertently destroying eggs, uh, especially if there's even a rival wren in the area. So, you know, they're territorial, not only with other birds, but also among themselves. So house wrens are are just, they're cool, but they're also just, uh, gosh, tiny little angry birds. <laughs> if you have uh, multiple wrens in an area, males are usually the ones that are gonna be highly territorial. You know, he's picking the cavity for a potential nest site and hoping to recruit a female, but it's actually not even one female. You know, these can, they're gonna be singing, uh, Just an incredible um, array of beautiful sounds from House Wrens, just lots of sounds. Definitely look it up if you haven't got the chance. My sounds here on this radio are not exactly great, Um, and that's not accurate, but it's very complex. There's a lot of up and down pitches. It's a very lengthy song, Um, and they're just going to sit and sing and sing and sing until they get a female now, once they get a female and they do end up uh, mating, and hopefully, you know that all goes well. There's actually a, a good percentage of of males that will actually take on a second mate. So, you know, up to about fifteen or twenty percent of male house friends will decide, oh, okay, I'm gonna have a, a second female or another family of babies. And so, it it's definitely like they're gonna they're gonna be foraging like crazy. They're still gonna be bringing food back and everything. But you know, the females are gonna end up doing a lot of that work uh, after the the male has mated. So uh, it's mostly you know just kind of and this is common with a lot of other songbirds it's it's a a different kind of breeding style just being able to have as many babies as possible and they de- tend to have quite a few eggs in their nests so um so maybe it's only one nest or maybe it's more than one nest that they decide to breed for throughout the year um, but you can have uh you know lots of tiny little wrens right now we have uh three of them at our wildlife center but we actually admitted a whole group of seven of them together from one nest cavity so They are kind of neat in the fact that because they're cavity nesters, usually again in a box or even if they find a tree hollow, you can try wild fostering this species. So taking a a wren and putting it in a box of a different bird, uh is one that they're not even familiar with, and uh, allowing the parents to take care of them. So we definitely did that with about half of the wrens we got from one one admission, and the others are doing very well here in rehabilitation. But because they are so small, they are very uh, hard to handle. They're they're smaller than the palm of your hand. Like they're just itty bitty little friends. Um, you know, in terms of their weight, you know, it might only be like 10 to 11 grams. So it's almost the size of a chickadee. So what we've done is we. We, we move them outside with itty bitty tiny mealworms for them to eat. Uh, we're hand feeding them every half an hour uh, until they're able to be flighted and they can fledge and hopefully successfully be able to find food on their own. So what we do for the wrens is make sure that they've got plenty of access to different types of foods that they might find naturally out in the wild, but we also include things like cocoon capers and if we can find you know any sort of like spider egg sac that's really good for them because spiders are one of their favorite foods. And then lots of uh, natural enrichment for them to kind of in because that dense foliage is where they're mostly foraging out in the wild so on average I would say you probably have a group of wrens maybe five to seven babies sometimes more than that um, and uh, usually after they have actually uh, hatched from their eggs it's about only 12 to 18 days after hatching that they will be starting to leave the nest so you know um, ours are getting really close they're very uh, active but they're starting to refuse food already and starting to find food on their own in their cages which is really really neat so so just really cool species um, definitely here all the time in Wisconsin but common all throughout the United States Um, but one that just you know kind of people kind of pass by because they don't really see them they're just fast and they're loud but I think they are awesome so I will end by sharing a little bit of a sound clip of uh, what these wrens our baby wrens uh, sound like in rehabilitation because I think how fun is that this is us feeding them Uh, so thanks for listening and uh, this has been your wildlife
1: weekly And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to W.R.T.'s Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Hewan Lim and Abigail Levins, who also wrote your headlines.
0: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and Reid Kamai.
1: Ashley Roberts engineered the show.
0: Nate helped produce this newscast.
1: And Charlie Pittman is the news director at W.O.R.T. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the W.O.R.T. Local News podcast and subscribe via your personal podcast platform.
0: And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with Anoesia Patio. Good night.